This is Horticulture Hangover with Colleen Dieter and Leah Turner. Call or text your lawn and garden questions to 512-836-0590. Good morning. This is Leah Turner and this is the Horticulture Hangover. Colleen is on vacation, so I am filling in and I've brought a guest with me today. Her Hello. name is Michelle Fonzi. Hi. From Michelle Fonzi Designs, is that correct? That's correct. Give yeah. me the URL for that. It's mfonzidesigns.com. Cool. And you are a landscape designer and a construction, landscape construction wizard. Yes. And you design public spaces, private spaces, restaurants, patios. Yeah, private well. gardens, all kinds of things. And you just do such beautiful work. And I wanted to have a conversation with you today. Well, thanks for having me, Leah. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I want to know what's one project that has been kind of one of your favorites and why? Just to kind of give people a, an idea of what it is that you do. Sure. One of my favorite projects is actually one of my earlier projects from a few years ago. It still holds a special place in my heart. It is a residential property in the Barton Hills neighborhood. And it was the first property, full property remodel that I did when I started my company um, five years ago. And um, the most, what I find to be the most interesting thing about this project is that we were able to reroute the gutters for the front of the house so that they would go into a dry creek bed. Yeah. And then underneath a small little bridge and into a bioswale that would hold the water, slow it down, let it have some time to percolate into the the garden infiltrate into the soil and then it can if it overflows there's a little overflow sill and um, it's a really special space in that you know to approach the front door you're walking at a very even smooth um, progression up to the front door but you if you look to the right or left as you're walking along the path, you realize that you are on a little bit of a, a stone bridge and that the mm. there's space for it, for something, for water, to go underneath it. Um, there's not really room for any, like, people or kids can't really fit under there. But, um, yeah, it's just a really special place. And that homeowner has become a continuing client and they've hired me back to work on their side yard and their backyard. So I've been pretty involved with that property um, since they took ownership of it a few years ago. And um, it still looks great. I drive by and snap pictures of it from time to time and see how it's doing. And yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful spot. So it feels really special to me. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. My favorite well, tell me, because you brought up a couple terms, a couple fun, fun earthworks terms, really. Uh, a dry creek. Yeah. I think a, tell me what a dry creek is. I love a dry creek. Yeah, good old dry creek bed. So 
oftentimes in landscape design, we're trying to create opportunities for interest. And one of my favorite ways of doing that is um, with water features. Um, But being that we live here in Austin, Texas, we don't have a lot of water. Mm. So we can use a technique like a dry creek bed to create the illusion or to give a note to the fact that there are times of flux, right? So when we get rain, we often get quick, sudden downpours of rain and they can, they often get put into a gutter and put into, they get channelized Mm -hmm. and taken away um, as quickly as possible. And when we're considering a native landscape like the one I'm speaking about specifically, um, and many other landscapes, we really want the water to slow down and get the chance to um, yeah, move into the soil and, and soak in. So often dry creek beds are that opportunity, that chance to slow down, the chance to um, create a water feature that is, yes, temporary, but also still... You know, it can be created or designed in a way that you can tell that it's a creek, right? So digging it, making sure it's low enough, um, filling it with stone. I love to use our local limestones to create um, different layers Mm -hmm. of of sized of rock from bigger boulders down to small river rock or even um, some pebbles if need be, depending on the scenario. And... Yeah, dry creek beds in general are just a really beautiful way to um, direct water and give it a chance to to slow down a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love you calling it a water feature. I had never thought of a dry creek as a water feature, but it really is. It's a feature that reminds us of water and also serves a function of directing the water to do what you want it to do rather than running all over the place or going towards the house or causing erosion. Yep. All of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And then you mentioned the term bioswale. Yeah, so a bioswale is often some sort of depression in the land. It can be a hole. It can be a ditch. Um, but the main tenements, as far as my use and understanding of a bioswale, is that um, it has life in it and it encourages life. So by slowing down water, holding on to it, um, you know, depending on what the ground condition is, maybe you have a clay soil or maybe you have sand. Um, Different soils have different percolation rates. And um, when you're using a bioswale as a technique to slow water down, you can change it in certain ways to get certain plants to grow. So there are a number of different plants that don't mind being saturated in water for a little bit longer than other plants. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some plants that are better suited to being Excuse me, at the bottom of the bioswale versus on the side of mm-hmm. the bioswale or at the top of the bioswale. And often that uh, that's determined by 
their water needs and how much they can withstand um, in the context of individual homes they're often a lot smaller than you might see them on a, a larger commercial project. Sure. Um, but I think it's still a really interesting technique to use and it's ecologically responsible, which yeah. I think is the most important piece of it. And those plants will filter and remediate the water as, as it soaks in mm-hmm. and then makes its way to the aquifer where it gets further purified. Yes, and especially in places like the Barton Hills neighborhood, it feels really important to still do that because they are, oh you know, my. so close to the creek. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of good that can be done with slowing water down. That's right. Yeah. And so what I want to ask you about some of those plants that you could put in a rain garden or a bioswale, specifically grasses, because I'm like Mm. really getting into grasses lately. Yeah. So do you have any favorite grasses for for planting somewhere where it's going to get periodically a little bit inundated? Yeah. I mean, I I think the muleys work, but like I'm kind of want to branch out into some other grasses and I want to know if you have any ideas. Yeah. I really like tuft grasses like little pillowy tufts like little sedges yes i'm a big fan of the sedges um they often do a good job of holding their shape Mm -hmm. and maintaining an appeal so that they don't look too scruffy too wild right so often in home landscaping, we're trying to find this crossroad between um, high-end horticulture, like very nice, beautiful, idyllic plants, and like a little bit more wild. So I'll often choose things like a Weberville sedge or the Berkeley sedge so that we can have, um, yeah, uh, more structure um, other grasses that I really like to use in that setting, um, one that's a little bit more controversial for folks would be the um, inland sea oats. I know some folks who are not interested in planting that grass. They're wrong. And I personally love it. I think it's a really beautiful uh, native grass. And and like its name indicates, the inland sea oats, um, it can withstand those periods of a little bit more uh, water. And then it also does really well in drought conditions and kind of just doesn't care. Yeah. Um, It's also really pretty and interesting. And its seed head... um, is beautiful and it comes back really quickly in the you know in the spring it's gorgeous the new growth on it i just love inland sea oats. so we can talk about that let's talk about inland sea oats a little bit more and why people are not always so happy about them but i want to like champion the inland sea oats. so let's do that when we come back from a break this is Horticulture Hangover with Colleen Dieter and Leah Turner. Call or text your lawn and garden questions to 512-836-0590. Wow. Whoa. That was the cougar roar. 
working my way through the soundboard. I'm Leah Cherner. This is the Horticulture Hangover. Once again, Colleen is on vacation. And I have a guest with me today, Michelle Fonzi. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Tell me your company again and that where they can find you. Michelle Fonzi Designs. And you can find me all over the internet as M Fonzi, that's F-O-N-Z-I, designs.com. Yeah. And I'm having a hard time calling you Michelle because I usually call you by your last name, Fonzi. Yeah. <laughs> Most people call me Fonzi. Y'all are welcome to call me Fonzi too. What's up, friends? Yeah. So, okay, let's go back. We were talking about inland sea oats. And I often encounter people who say, oh, I hate inland sea oats because it grows everywhere and it's just, you can't keep on top of it because it just spreads and spreads and spreads. And it's often people that have like problems getting things to grow in their <laughs> yard. And it's like, well, that's a great thing. Like, let's, let's celebrate that. Like, it's doing great. It's a host plant for certain butterflies. It is a beautiful grass. And it spreads. But, you know, I just, I think it's, it's a happy survivor. It's also not that hard to pull out, too, right. if it's something that you don't want. I often find people most... Uh, frustrated with this plant in edge conditions. So like the cracks by the sidewalk or the driveway or in between some rocks where they didn't want it. Um, and, you know, there's there's something to be said about that, but I think it's more important to just have plants that are happy to be there and want to grow. So that's where I find the benefit in inland sea oats. Um it also depends on the size of your garden, the size of the property that you're working on. And yes, it, it could become a, a maintenance thing that people don't want to deal with. But I think that they're, it's better to have plants that grow than ones that don't grow. So. And they can get a little out of control in the full sun if you have like good deep soil. They can go really wild. But yeah, I think it's just... Put them in the shade. Yep. If, you know, they'll be a little bit less aggressive. I, I think they look great in the sun. They get really tall. But um, but I usually use them as a shade grass. Yeah, I do too, actually. I use them in the shade where I find things that have been struggling or, or won't grow. It's one of the plants that I'll, I'll try out for a client that, that needs a little bit, something that's a little bit more tenacious. Totally. Yeah. And so, okay, switching gears from sea oats, I want to ask you about a project you've been working on that is a community park in yes. East Austin. Yeah. And I just have so many questions about, like, how do you approach designing a park? Because there's so many people's needs that need to be taken into consideration, you know? And so that sounds, it just sounds like such a fascinating, pro you know, prospect of, like, okay, it needs to be family-friendly. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be beautiful, but it has to be maintainable. Like, there's so many things. So yeah. tell me about this park project that you're working on. Sure, absolutely. So I am actually functioning as the project manager for this project. So I am working with a team of folks who have been involved with a property over on Austin's east side in the Guadalupe 
uh, Sedania Net Zero neighborhood. And um, I'm working with the Guadalupe Neighborhood Development Corporation, helping them get the project installed. So my job is working as the boots on the ground, making things happen, making sure that all of the necessary players are involved, um, holding on to the timeline and kind of driving the project forward. Mm -hmm. um, this development has been growing um, over a course of several years and they're finally in a space where they're ready to connect some of these different housing elements and that's what this park space is so it's already designated it's already there it already exists but right now we're making it more user-friendly so there is one main um path through it and it's it's just a simple dg path um and there's some trees and a couple of little um, planter beds but the community is ready to have it be something that is more permanent and um the um the main impetus for us being able to do this was from a grant from Wells Fargo, the Welcome Home Grant. So that's what's funding the project and that is what is making it possible to happen. So um, the engineers and landscape architects who are already involved in the development are still involved. Um, but yeah, like I said, my involvement is with the um, project management of the space. Okay, so you're project managing it. And so what kind of things are going in there? What's being installed there? So our intention um, is to create some spaces for um, little kids to be able to enjoy the outside. So one of the develop one of the the housing units, housing complexes that is there is for women and young children. And they don't really have anywhere outside other than some like very heavily fenced in areas. Mm -hmm. And this is immediately next to it. It's also adjacent to um, an estuary for the um, Boggy Creek. So they have a little bit of wetland river access. So it's a more of a wild type space right now. So we're trying to blend that, um, you know, that feeling of a community garden, but also next to a creek bed. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be like an outdoor classroom. We're trying to get that to happen. Also, um, some, uh, let's see, uh, garden beds for people to be able to grow some food. So a community garden space um, and walking paths, mm -hmm. some shade shelter, native plantings. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so this is a park. Someone just asked if this is a public park or a park for residents. It's 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 part of a housing development, an affordable housing development on the east side. And so it's I mean, it's it's a private park, sort of, but it's not like. Yeah, there, it's a it is a public space. Right. It's not like fenced in or anything right it's not fenced in and there's walking paths through it that connect it to other parts of the neighborhood sure so it's a neighborhood park yeah you know it's not very large it's actually quite small um maybe a quarter acre okay um but it's 
it's enough space for people who have no space. Yeah. You know, it's it's immediate access to greenery for people who historically have had little to no access to anything green other than a patch of weeds. Yeah. So it's a it's definitely one of those projects that I'm really excited to work on. Um not only because it feels good to help people and I I was asked to help on this project, which, you know, feels special, but um it's it's important work. Like this would have all, all otherwise just been more a derelict space. The the development is actually on um what was formerly um a landfill. Mm-hmm. So the property the land has been reclaimed it's been turned into net zero housing it's got a number of different um home ownership opportunities for people and um yeah it's it's special over there it's 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 more protected you wouldn't immediately know it was there unless you lived there right Mm -hmm. so cool yeah okay well we are back up against the break again we'll be right back with michelle fonzi in a minute Welcome to the Horticulture Hangover on News Radio KLBJ. You're in the right place to get answers to all of your questions about your lawn, garden, trees, and more. Here are your hosts, Colleen Dieter and Leah Turner. There's a hawk for you. I'm Leah Turner. And I'm Michelle Fonsi. That's right. And this is the Horticulture Hangover. If you have questions about hardscaping, I want to hear your hardscaping questions. You can text them to 512-836-0590. 512-836-0590. And I'm going to continue my conversation with Michelle Fonzi from Michelle Fonzi Designs. And um, yeah, next I want to talk about some kind of general guidelines for designing comfortable spaces for people, you know, the kind of nuts and bolts of hardscape, I think. Um, and uh, I have been working on a project with a Reese Ballatine from Seedlings and um, Seedlings Gardening, and she was explaining to me that you know, the woman, like a woman's average kind of stride and gait is like different than a man's. And that a lot of the ways that like stairs are designed and stuff like that isn't necessarily like with the woman's like uh, walking kind of in mind, you know? And so it's like, I just thought that was so interesting um, because, you know, we start taking into account people's stride length and their, you know, just differences between people and um, and how there's, like, a certain amount of, like, genderedness around these spaces. But, like, you know, I guess I don't want to go way too far into that because I really am actually just curious about how do you make comfortable pathways, comfortable stairs? Like, you know, there's a certain width that would be probably ideal for two people to walk rather than one. So give me some, give me some kind of general guidelines of how you approach making spaces, hardscapes spaces comfortable for people. That's a great question. Thanks, Leah. Um, 
One of the main things that often happens on property is that we show up and have a specific set of things we're already dealing with. And in the case of walkways, um, for example, if we're dealing with a front yard, getting to the front door. Mm -hmm. So wherever the curb is, you know, where you approach from, where you park or walk down the sidewalk and then approach the door, you have different situations that can happen. It could be completely flat. It could be steep uphill, steep downhill. Sure. It could be you need to approach it sideways because there's a tree. Whatever it is, you have to assess, right? So that's the first thing we're doing anytime we're doing a landscape design is kind of taking stock of what's there, what's going on. Um, and we find the levels of, okay, how much grade change is there between here and there? Mm -hmm. And what is our main objective? Do we need to have this path um, be wheelchair accessible? Does it need to be have a baby carriage? Or, you know, kids, are they going to be playing on roller skates? Mm -hmm. Whatever it could be, you need to account for that. That often helps determine the material that you use, but also the width. So the there are a number of standards of widths of things that, you know, if something was going to be ADA accessible, um, that's Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, a lot of the standards that were put in place for people who are in wheelchairs also benefit other people other than them. So other than people with disabilities, um, pregnant people, children. Um, yeah, like you said, it's people with a stroller. Yeah. Um, so in general, we, I try to make paths four feet wide as often as possible because that is what's comfortable for two people to walk next to each other. Mm -hmm. So if someone needs assistance, you can hold their arm. Um, or if you just want to walk hand in hand together along a path, um, four feet is a good, um, standard for that. Um, when we're also designing to utilize a space. You know, there's that initial path. Yeah, maybe that one needs to be four feet, but, you know, we only go to the trash cans a handful of times mm -hmm. throughout the week. That path doesn't need to be as It doesn't need to wide. be huge. It doesn't need to be huge. It doesn't need to, to um, draw your attention in any way. Maybe it can be a little bit more narrow or maybe it can be flagstone steppers, and it doesn't even have to be a fully established path. Just sort of depends on where you're going, what you're doing, what materials you're using. Um, when it comes to stairs or places where you're dealing with elevation change, there's also a number of standards. Mm -hmm. So in urban settings, we try to aim for stairs to be... Um, larger than five and a half inches, but no more than a seven inch step. So that's the rise. Yeah, the Correct. rise of the stairs. I typically aim for six inches. Six, yeah. And um, the run of the step, I think it can't be any more shallow than 10 inches mm -hmm. and can be as wide as it needs to be. Yeah, a nice wide or long run makes for a leisurely Yes, stair stepping. More of like a gliding your way across the yard. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one way to create a little bit more of that user experience of, 
yes, when I walk out of my home, I want to feel like I'm walking down the red carpet. So I'm going to create my stairs so that they have this beautiful cascade that takes me from one side of the yard to the other. Or maybe you have a few steps and then a landing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it often is dictated by how much space is even available, right? So if you still sure. have to rise a certain number of inches, but you only have so much depth to cover. You gotta have more steps. You gotta have more steps, or you have to have fewer steps. It just, it depends. So there's math. We gotta do math. Yeah. We do the math there. That's the biggest math I do often. Yeah. Um, is figuring out stairs and, um, and then of course sidewalks or paved areas still need to have drainage. So we still need to account for water movement across any hard surfaces. So everything we aim to have a 2% grade, which is another standard, um, which just means over uh, the course of 100 feet, it needs to rise or fall two inches. Okay. Yeah. It's not a lot, right? That's what what most walkways are. Uh You might just not even notice. You might not even notice. There's a slope there. Yeah. Okay, what about, okay, one question that I always think about a lot is to mortar or not to mortar. You mentioned flagstone mm-hmm. steps, st- not steps, but uh, like pavers, you know, using pavers like for a walkway, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, when would you decide to mortar those in or dry lay them? I rarely dry lay. Oh, yeah, I really only dry lay if it's very much in a garden and is really just about a landing pad. If gotcha. it's a walkway and if I'm offering any sort of guarantee on mine or my crew's work, we set it in stone. And what I mean specifically about that, like, yes, there are aesthetic things that that can affect. Mm-hmm. So really what we try to do is um, make sure that the paver is not going to wiggle or move. Yeah. And that can be determined mostly by the size of it and how much it weighs and what is underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're always compacting the soil right underneath that spot. Um, sometimes we can't compact the soil or it's already compact, but we do use um, a nice hearty dollop of cement mm-hmm. and we put the paver down on the cement and then you know depending on what's next to it um, if it's more pavers or not if it's just stepping stones we will still put cement at the bottom of it to mm-hmm. help it not move sure um, and then you know you pack in around the sides of the stone to give it some added stability and also to make the soil around it more stable so that it doesn't wash onto the stone um, but in general, when it comes to um, wanting to, um, yeah, make sure that it's solid, um, we do use mortar. So if it needs to have mortar, um, we, we try and keep it solid and safe for people to walk. So it's fewer tripping hazards. Perfect. Okay, we're going to a break. This is Horticulture Hangover with Colleen Dieter and Leah Turner. Call or text your lawn and garden questions to 512-836-0590. We're back again. I'm Leah Turner, and uh, with me is Michelle Fonzi filling in for Colleen today. And let's get your mic turned on. 
And uh, yeah, so this is the Horticulture Hangover. And I wanted to ask you about being a woman in the field of landscape construction, project management, et cetera. Um, how does it feel being one of the only women in the hard hat on the site, you know, and what's that been like? What have you, what have you learned? And I'm just curious what kind of advice you have for, for other women who are interested in doing this kind of work, but it's, are intimidated by it. Sure. Thanks for the question, Leah. And good morning, everybody. Um, I have been in the landscape industry for over 15 years now, and I have spanned quite the spectrum of job opportunities. It's been hard, Mm -hmm. as one might imagine. It's not only... I started out at the bottom, Mm -hmm. And I've worked my way up. And, um, you know, when you are someone who's new in the industry or more of a tech position, as in a gardener or somebody on a grounds crew who, you know, is getting their hands and knees dirty every day, those, it's a very tough world. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was one of the main inspirations for why I continued my education. So I got an associate's degree in ornamental horticulture and then a bachelor's in landscape architecture. And in doing so, it opened a number of doors for me that I was excited to walk through. And in that process, I learned that it was very uncommon for not only for there to be women in the classroom, which was the first place where I came up against this disproportionate uh, situation, but also in the field. Um, I am a business owner now, and I've worked for a number of companies throughout my time. And at this stage of my life and at this juncture with my business, um, it's really about showing up with grace, but also strength and courage and really being on top of your stuff Mm -hmm. and knowing how things get done and who you got to talk to to make things happen. Um, Being approachable and being kind gets you so far for anyone, no matter your gender. Kindness is really how I try to approach things most. And in general, when it comes to construction, everybody wants the same outcome. They want a successful workplace. They want a good job. They want to get paid. Mm -hmm. And we want things to thrive and be happy. So knowing that, starting from that, I am often the person that sets the tone for pretty much any setting I walk into. I'm happy to be there. I'm excited about getting the job done. If stuff went wrong the day before, I'm not showing up all smiley. I'm stern-faced, and I want progress. I want to make sure that people are doing their job. That's why I'm there. As a project manager, you've got to wear that hat, too. You've got to be able to have conversations that are difficult. And I think that my experiences have led me to be able to hold on to professionalism um, and seek 
important outcomes. Like we, I don't want to ever have to have someone leave a job site. Um, I want things to be able to work out. So we're always coming from a place of understanding. But um, yeah, it's it's really just about showing up and trying to be your best self every day. And you know that doesn't always happen. And you gotta accommodate that, you know. And sometimes it's not saying as much when you could be saying a lot more. Sometimes it's just a quick hello instead of a, a long, lengthy chat. Um, I also find that people are willing to trust me. I don't know if that necessarily has anything to do with me being a woman or what I've been told my kind eyes, but <laughs> um, building trust is really the most important thing. And I think that as you know, the person that I am, like that is my, my go-to. That's how I get most of my jobs. I think, you know, just being knowledgeable, being direct and yeah, having a solid resume. Um, and most of my clients come through referrals. Mm -hmm. So there's rapport, there's, you know, past sure. situations that people can speak to on my behalf. And yeah, it's it's what's grown my business. Kind eyes and professionalism, the Michelle Fonzie way. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so let's see. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for women who are interested in building? Do it. Designing. Do it. Do it. Um, go for it. I say find some friends, have a meetup. Like, talk to people, figure out where you might want to fit into the industry, um, find your niche market, um, read as much as you can, have as much, like, in-field experience as you can, get your hands dirty, even if you don't like it. It's really important that you know what it's like at the bottom so that when mm. you get to the top, you know how to treat those people. Yeah. Because... Anybody who's ever going to work for you, especially here in Austin, Texas, they are doing back-breaking labor, and it's really hard. Gardening is a really difficult um, ask. So, yeah, I think it's just important to show up with respect and be really smart. Yeah. Be the smartest one in the room. Be the smartest one in the, uh, at the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Know what's going on. So, okay. Tell us again where we can find information about you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or on my webpage, which is mfonzydesigns.com. You can also find me on Instagram, mfonzy.designs. Um, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, I'm Leah Cherner. This is the Horticulture Hangover. We are not talking about just plants today. We are talking about all kinds of things related to design and building a garden. So some people had questions about why are we talking about this stuff? Well, because we want to. And we wanted to bring you something a little bit different today because Colleen's out of town. And it's too hot to be planting anything, honestly. 
stop planting stuff, people. Yeah, there's, you know, horticulture is important and there's a lot that goes into it. There's more than just plants in the, the horticulture world. You got to be able to make sure the plants are safe, that they've got water and that you're building smart infrastructure so that the plants can have a happy home. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's about all for today. I think I already said I'm Leah Cherner with Delta Dawn Gardens, um, and Colleen will be back next week. But everybody have a good week, and uh, don't get too hot. <laughs>